HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the Museum of Food and Drink, sparking curiosity about food with exhibits you can eat. For more information, visit mofad.org. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network. We are a member-supported, nonprofit food radio station. That means that every single thing we do, from broadcasting 35 weekly shows for free to bringing you exclusive content from sold-out food events across the country to offering scholarships to high school students, is only possible thanks to the support of our loyal members. And we want you to join the club. Become a member during our 2017 Summer Drive to get access to sweet swag and pledge your support to the world's only food radio station. Visit heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to become a member now. Welcome to Food Without Borders, a show about food, politics, and identity. I'm your host, Sari Kamen. My guest today is Tunde Wei. He is a Nigerian-born chef who has created several dinner series that inspire guests to discuss themes of race and immigration. Welcome to the show, Tunde. What's up? Hey, what's up? <laughs> you come in, coming to me from New Orleans. Thank you so much for, for chatting with me today. Thank you for having me. Um, yeah, it's dope. It, I, it I didn't know pleasure. you guys gave scholarships out to high school kids. That's amazing and interesting. Yeah, it is cool. We um, just did a program where we worked, we did some mentoring with high school kids and helped them create their own, their first radio stories. And actually the the girl that I worked with, um, this really cool girl, Nia, she did a story about her own sort of immigration experience and, and connecting to her culture through food, um, which is great because that's sort of the, the topic of my show. So it worked oh, out really well. Yeah. 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 So what's what's going on in New Orleans? What are you working on? Currently? Like right this second? <laughs> just like in general, like just kind of uh, kind of fill me in on like what sort of projects you're working on right now. I'm actually writing. Um, I'm sort of finishing up this essay that is going to, that is going to be published in the San Francisco Chronicle on, um, I don't know, it's kind of, it's, it's maybe it's a little too expansive, but the broad themes are um, uh, racism and patriarchy. Oh, <laughs> so, yeah, that's a lot. Uh, yeah. 
so yeah, that's what I'm working on right now, um, writing and um, and just uh, trying to figure out how to transition my um, my dinner series, which you mentioned at, at the top of the show, um, into a more full-fledged or um, um, less itinerant um, production, you know, like just mm-hmm. housed in one place. Yeah, like laying down some roots. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All those words to say what you just said. Right. Exactly what I mean. <laughs> um, well, I want to talk about your dinner series. Um, you've done two different separate series at this point. Is that right? Or more? Um, let's just say two that are relevant to what you're talking about. I did. I, I started a, the first dinner series that I did was um, it didn't have an explicitly political theme. I was just cooking Nigerian food and sort of like railing against popular food culture. What? So, what about popular food culture? Kind of inspired you to, I don't know, create something I guess adversarial with food. Uh, well, uh, everything, right? Like <laughs> everything from uh, from what sort of uh, food genres or food types were um, celebrated. You know, so usually Eurocentric sort of food or Eurocentric techniques. Um, European stuff, um, the way food is plated, um, just sort of the the lack of or the the the, the self focus and the pretentiousness of the food. So the food is just concerned with itself. You know, it didn't talk about anything else. Um, and then the abstraction of food, um, the passing of flavors, like all of these aspects of. Contemporary food culture were the things that bothered me initially when I first started cooking Nigerian food, and I started using and I used Nigerian food as a as a counterbalance to what I thought was um, frivolous indulgence in in um, in dining. You know, so you kind of looked around at popular restaurant culture and identified like a certain amount of. I don't know, gratuitousness and wanted to like <laughs> connect with your heritage as a way to counter that? Yeah, I mean, that would make me sound more calculating than I am. I, I owned <laughs> uh, a restaurant in Detroit, and what we did at the time um, was we had different chefs come in to cook at that restaurant, and most of the chefs that we had come in were very talented, um, and they were cooking sort of in the, in the, in the tradition of the time, which, you know, that time still continues, sort of like new uh, modern American food. And the food was, without a doubt, delicious. At least that was the consensus, even apart from myself, because I soon realized that I couldn't tell the difference between good food and food that I wasn't quite excited about because my palate had been trained um, differently, being that I'm from Nigeria and that's the food that I had. So it was based on my observations of the food that we served at, at my restaurant and the reaction that that food got from the media and from our diners and the orthodoxy that was um, that was spreading um, or that was classifying it and how people were, um, you know, were, were just becoming more and more um, um, interested in seeing, in seeing a particular thing uh, uh, in, in the culinary sense. They were interested in, like, using radicchio or whatever it's called, or Maya lemon or um, bone marrow, and 
presenting it in the same sort of way, and I was just, uh, I, I couldn't understand it. I, I wasn't connected to it uh, emotionally or even intellectually, and based on that experience, I, I felt like the answer to that, to that whole question was to sort of like serve the food that I grew up eating, which is Nigerian food, which is pretty um, blunt and expressive. At the same time, it doesn't, uh, its nuance is different, you know, uh, it announces itself, the flavors announce themselves, you know, at the, at the fore, and then nuance happens afterwards. And um, it's unpretentious. Um, there isn't any sort of abstraction around the meal. We're, we're not discussing or dissecting how good, you know, uh, soup tastes. We just eat it, you know, and then we, we let the meal be the background and the backdrop for other more relevant conversations, you know. Mm-hmm. So that was sort of like how we started. I mean, that's interesting because I think most people will go to a restaurant and eat food and then judge it based on how it tasted. Like, yeah. if, you know, they might taste Meyer lemon and think like, oh, that's that's sweet. And this, whatever you said, bone marrow is like rich and decadent. And like that, those are all good things. Like this is, this is pleasant. Like this, this tastes delicious to me. And then would judge the meal like based on that quality. So you're saying that like, despite the fact that it might have, have tasted good because it didn't sort of resonate with you in, I don't know, like a, like a more abstract way or a way that connected you, um, maybe nostalgically, that it didn't feel meaningful? Yeah, and plus, it's like contemporary food culture is too abstract. But it's abstract in a way that isn't even intellectually interesting. You know, it's, it's just, it's abstract because we have um, excess capital and excess time for uh, our leisure. So the abstractness has come about because we're trying to distract ourselves. You know, we're not like generally when when we abstract like feelings or we abstract um, concepts, they are for like a greater intellectual purpose. You know, um, but with food, the only purpose was just to escape everything else. So you're eating at the table, and you're bringing out, you're bringing out your camera, and you're taking pictures of the food, and then you're talking about the food, um, and then you're talking about the about you talking about the food to other people who are next to you and asking people what they think. And, like, it's just, like, this rabbit hole of um, navel-gazing that is kind of dizzying, mm. you know? And, 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 and there's no, there's no um, to me, and I don't want to be too broad, there is validity in that sort of approach, but the, whatever benefit that may come of that, it's, it's slim compared to... to to the loss of simple enjoyment and company um, of the food and of friends in in a setting where um, the food is served. So I'm just not, I mean, I have been cooking and I've been talking about food now, I think for like three or four years. So I'm, I'm unfortunately like, I catch myself falling into those same traps, talking about the food that I'm eating, talking about, talking about food. But generally I'm not interested in, in, um, in critiquing the flavor of food, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in critiquing, the, in critiquing the flavor of food when that points to something else. Mm-hmm. Like points to, um, for example, who's cooking this food? Where, where does this food come from? What are the underlying um, and invisible um, structures that hold this food up that make this food possible in this space at this time with me eating it? You know. 
Yeah, I understand. I mean, that seems like that was the purpose of your dinner series and you use food kind of as a, a conduit for a conversation. But, um, and I want to talk more about the specifics of that, but I think it would be helpful to hear a little bit about your background and then understand like where you're coming from and, and why this has been your trajectory. So would you mind just speaking a little bit about like your experience growing up in Nigeria and then emigrating to the United States? It was blissful. Hmm. Uh, Africa was just amazing. Just animals everywhere. Fruits on the floor. You just pick them up, you eat them, and you walk away. Um, I'm kidding. That's not how it was. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, that sounds really great. Why would you leave? Uh, my, my, I don't know. I, I, was, I, I had a, what do you call it, like a middle-class upbringing. Um, you know, I went to school, <laughs> came home, watched television, uh, did just did like regular stuff, I guess that most Americans would be um, familiar with. Mm-hmm. Uh, there wasn't anything particularly extraordinary about growing up in Nigeria. Um, and then I moved here when I was sixteen. I moved here for um, college. Uh, tried college for a while, didn't quite stick. So um, then I then I stopped going to college. The story is more complex than that, but that's sort of the easy, the shorter um, um, story. And so I stopped going to college. But I came here. I came to America on a, on, a, on a student visa. And when I stopped going to school, my visa um, lapsed, and so I became undocumented. And so I sort of just spent a lot of time, just I don't know, just living, you know, without really doing anything. Mm-hmm. Which, which doesn't really explain what I was doing because I was doing things, but I feel like nothing mattered. Like all the stuff that I was doing didn't matter so much, or their um, their value weren't apparent until, like, say, 2011, when um, like a series of, of events brought me back to Detroit. Because when I moved here 17 years ago, I first moved to Detroit and then moved out of the city and I moved back, you know traveling between the suburbs and the city and, you know, over 10 years living in, in different places. But in 2011, I moved back to the city. Um, and I just started working out of Detroit, working and living there. And that was the beginning of a of, of like sort of a rediscovery and uh, like a personal rediscovery. Like Detroit just like didn't save my life really, but it showed me my life, you know? And, um, and it was in Detroit that I made the necessary relationships that I had and I still have to open up my first restaurant, which was like totally um, happenstance. You know, I was, just came out of a conversation with a friend and he was talking about opening up a restaurant. And I'm like, fuck it, let's, let's do it. And three months later, we had a space, we had everything. And we were opening up and I didn't quite know what I was doing, and but we did it. And that was the restaurant that I, that I mentioned um Earlier, where we had different chefs come in, come into the into the restaurant and cook uh, pre-feed meals, multi-course meals, and it, you know it was pretty successful. Maybe not uh, monetarily, but in terms of um, the influence and the access and the opportunities that came after that. And so I did that for a year, and then you know towards the end of that year. Well, towards the end of the first year opening the restaurant, that was when I started really um, having this sort of conflict with the food, which kind of overstates the shit because I, I wasn't like 
going back home at night, I'm like, oh my God, I can't sleep because you know, American food is so fucked up. You know, it wasn't <laughs> like that. It was just like, you know, I'm like, oh, I don't understand this bullshit. You know, what so do you think? I what did. do you think changed in you? What do you think shifted that you started to have these conflicting feelings about the food? Uh, again, it, so again, I don't want to overstate like my sensitivity towards um, American food. It's not, it's, it's not that deep. But there was a particular moment where I remember um, we were serving food like again one of these like really wonderful six course meals at the restaurant, and we were playing like a notorious B.I.G. song, you know. Uh-huh. And then somebody, uh, uh, an older lady, said, asked need to change the music back to Miles Davis um, because that that sort of jazz went better with the food and I was just like what the fuck mm. uh, like what are you saying you know like I, I guess now even back then like all the hit restaurants play rap music and shit so it's not it's not as scandalous to play rap music now but I just I felt like in that moment there were so many um, obvious things right the fact that um you know, that jazz was the rap of its day, mm-hmm. you know, and jazz had become sanitized and lost its sort of like, or or has seemingly lost its revolutionary message. And rap is sort of this revolutionary form of music, but has been co-opted by commercial forces like everything does. And all of that spoke to the space that I was in, this restaurant, which we started off as a um, provocative um, exercise that was slowly um, being standardized into another um, conventional restaurant under the guise of um, innovative, you know? And then I was like, plus, in my mind, I'm like, plus, this food, I don't even understand this shit. Like, it's delicious, but I don't understand what the food is saying. Uh, It's just, like, too much. It's too precious, too much is happening, and I just don't want to really deal with this sort of food. And I want to cook the shit that I eat and I grew up eating. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely um, a tension that you're identifying because I think most people go out to eat because they're pursuing comfort and you, um, you seem to kind of reject the notion that food is, is just purely pleasure. Like food should be provocative as you said before. And it was kind of losing its edge, but I think it's difficult to like, to, but it's a, it's a challenge I think to serve people delicious food, but also try and um, remove, you know, like the sort of the comforting nature of it. Um, well, but maybe you I, can talk about like in your dinner series, how you've been able to achieve that. Well, I would say a couple of things. Mm-hmm. I don't think food is exclusively um, an arena to have uncomfortable conversations and, you know, certainly not. Yeah. Our, our anchor. That that would be too much. I think <laughs> that we we have, you know, broadly speaking, two kinds of spaces, right? Public spaces and private spaces. I think in private spaces, food can be whatever we want food to be. I think in public spaces, we need to think more critically about what food can be and should be. And that we, we, and I'm talking about, I guess, the general food culture, for a long time have been experiencing, um, you know, the um, benefits of this great wealth that this country has. And, 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 and food has been rising in prominence um, as, as sort of wealth has been, has been growing and, and, um, and, and more people have, or, or, you know, I guess the middle class has been expanding and all of that, all these, like, wonderful socioeconomic 
um, realities. Um, but the, the the food is still food still has a primary um, purpose, right? Which is to satiate our hunger and to nourish us. That's what it is primarily. And and the restaurants who who um, the restaurants which address this, you know, these are utilitarian restaurants. You go there and you go there to eat because you're hungry. You're not going there for an experience. You're not going there for uh, a light show or uh, you know a, a cabaret. Mm-hmm. You're going there to eat and then you're leaving. And then the other spaces I recognize food as um, entertainment. And so these are the spaces that I'm talking about. The spaces that are uh, that have really come about from the from the fat of the system, right? The excess um, wealth that has been created that now needs to find um, needs to find a purpose elsewhere. And these spaces are the spaces that I'm critical about because these spaces are just serving food and and entertainment without any moral message. You know, it's just come in and eat and like get the fuck away from your life, and it's 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 um, it's a double double um, jeopardy. It compounds the problem, right? That we, because of our excesses, have created restaurants that support entertainment, are inviting people to come and be excessive in these spaces without considering the consequences of what they're doing, and and that's why I think those. Food spaces that celebrate escapism and entertainment have a duty to be more conscious and to be more overtly um, political. At least that's what I feel, and that's the work that I'm trying to do with with the dinner series and with whatever sort of restaurant space I eventually um, land in. So, what are some ways? I mean, I want to hear the specifics of how you're doing it, but what are some ways that you know your sort of typical fine dining restaurant where? Um, you know, primarily the purpose is to to create an experience where diners can kind of, you know, to use your words, like escape the, the, the hardships and, and the often difficult realities and the and the burden of life and just kind of enjoy and savor the food. What what are some ways that you feel that they can, I don't know, in, incorporate a more of a, a moral message into the dining experience? I don't know. I mean, I... I, I... I'm. I find it hard to be to be prescriptive, mm-hmm. you know. And but I can speak to the stuff that I'm that I'm doing. Okay, you know, please or that do. I, or yes. that I want to do. I don't know what other people should do, but and and people could sort of like view my perspective as extreme. I think that we should have, and I and I and I'm working to create restaurants that are politically ex- explicit in their position. You know, um, that say. Or broadcast very um, clearly what their politics are, and so what that means is just literally restaurants where you can talk about politics, where you can talk about race, where you can talk about um, gender and um, economics and um, and pain and trauma, like restaurants that do that. That's what I'm interested in, in creating. And I don't know if there's, there's no, like, magic pill, like, you know, I'm not, I don't have, like, smoke machines, like, billowing <laughs> smoke and, like, 
you know, firebombs happening. It's just that people sit down and just talk. That's it. They talk and they eat. And every every place or every like point of contact between the restaurant and the diner is um, affected by by the politics of the space. So maybe the menu. The menu has explicit political messaging on it. The uh, decor is um, politically uh, vibrant. Um, the staff, you know, represent their politics in their on their person. In their they embody their their their, their personal um, politics. Like all of that, you know, the format of the restaurant, the um, the hours the hours the restaurant keeps, the sort of food that the restaurant um, sources, like all of all of that shit. You know, I mean, there's a perfect example of a restaurant that's doing this right now. It's um, um, conflict kitchen in, in Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh yeah. um, it's a great example. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are other, not so much restaurants, but food collectives that are doing this work, like the People's um, Kitchen in um, in the Bay Area and Nourish Resist in the Bay as well, and Food Lab Detroit in Detroit. Um, they're, you know, there are different people who are using food um, to advocate for a different kind of communal space, um, using food to um, to organize, in a sense, and so that's so. I mean, that's the only prescription I can offer is the one that I'm trying to do: just create spaces that explicitly demand conversations that are socially, culturally, politically difficult but necessary to have. Yeah. So for your most recent dinner series, which um, was about immigration, how did you how did the food how, how did what role did the food play? Like other than create a setting where people could come together and talk, you wouldn't necessarily have to be eating in order to have that kind of conversation. So um, how did you use the food to, to stimulate the conversation? I don't know. I just put the food in front of people. The I, my my current theory on food is um, food is like the air that we breathe, you know? So it's like if you ask me, like, you know, in tough, for example, in tough um, uh, 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 international negotiations, how was oxygen used to to deliver a compromise? Mm. I mean, it wasn't used. The oxygen exists. Without the oxygen, like you can't, you can't breathe. So you can't like reach a compromise on, you know, on peace or anything. You know. So for me, that's how I treat food. I think food, food should be there. Food is the food is the background. Um, it's the important background. The food has to be delicious, of course. The 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 care and attention to detail has to be there. People have to love the food. Um, but people, in my opinion, should leave unable to unstitch the experience of the conversation from the food, from the atmosphere, from whatever is stirred in them that they carry throughout um, and pass that conversation. That all of that stuff should be one sort of unitary ball of revelation. But that's how I feel. So I, they, you know, I don't know how to answer that question in terms of like what the food does. I'm, I'm trying to make the food as invisible but as relevant as possible. That's challenging, I would imagine. Um, 
Tunde, this is so fascinating. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, and then we'll be right back to continue this conversation. This is the story of men and women who shed not only their clothes, but also their... Hi, I'm Dave Arnold, the host of Cooking Issues on the Heritage Radio Network. We all know and love Chinese takeout dishes like General Tso's chicken and egg rolls. But here's the thing. Even though we call it Chinese food, it's not like the food you'd find in China. What's the story behind this cuisine? And how did it become so popular that you can find a Chinese-American restaurant in nearly every town in the country? The answers may surprise you. Visit the Museum of Food and Drink in Brooklyn and see our newest exhibition, Chow, Making the Chinese American Restaurant. Chow engages visitors with compelling accounts of how Chinese immigrants overcame racism and created Chinese American cuisine. Discover the science behind the flavors of your favorite takeout dishes, feast on rotating tastings developed by the country's most talented Chinese-American chefs, and try your hand at writing your own fortune, which will be baked into actual cookies by a 1,500-pound fortune cookie machine. But what better way to learn, connect, and eat? You can visit Chow at the Museum of Food and Drink on Fridays through Sundays from noon to 6. Tickets and more information can be found at mofad.org. Hi, I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past here on Heritage Radio Network. Using food as a lens to observe history and culture, I take you on a weekly journey through different topics of culinary history. Tune in on Thursdays at noon to hear about the history of such topics as American cake, the accidental churning of butter, pho, the Vietnamese soup craze, and so much more. And help us keep this and other heritage programming alive. Go to heritageradionetwork.org and click on the beating heart to donate and continue enjoying great programs. Hey, you're listening to Food Without Borders. We've been talking with Chundewe. He is in New Orleans right now um, speaking to me over the phone. He's a Nigerian chef who's uh, been working on a dinner series that raises issues of immigration and race and he uses food to kind of bring people together um, and create a setting where tough conversations can happen. So, Tunde, I was wondering, um, you've been working on these dinner series and using food in a very sort of provocative way. Has this something? Has this been something that you've always been inspired to do, like work with food in this way, or has it been more recently because Trump is in office? Um, it's been more recently. Uh, it's predated Trump, but... Um, I, I get my first, I guess, actively political dinner series was 2016 in March. I mean, I started considering that I started like laying the foundation for that dinner series at the end of 2015, so the fall of 2015, and I started in the spring of 2016, and um, and that dinner series was about race, and it, it was, uh, I guess, my sort of opportunity to personally reflect in a public space about um, black identity and what that meant for me and to come to terms with how um, blackness was understood um, uh, on, a, on, on a scale larger than me and independent of me. Um, and, that, and, that, and that sort of coincided or rather was inspired, um, which is a terrible word, but it was inspired by the state of um, publicized killings of black folks by the police. Mm-hmm. 
uh, around that time. And so that was sort of the um, the impetus behind the dynasties at the time. So it's a recent, um, so like recent marrying of food and critical discourse that, um, that I'm doing. And how has your um, agenda changed? I mean, I, I know it went from race to immigration, and I'm I'm those are both very, you know, personal issues for you, but how have things changed for you, um, you know, since this last election took place and how is, how, have, how do you feel just like as someone who's immigrated to this country and is like a vocal undocumented immigrant, how, how has that affected your, your personal identity? Yeah. I should say about my, my status is that I am, and this may not mean anything to folks, but I'm like, I guess more accurately, administratively undocumented mm-hmm. like um i'm i don't i am not i think at least that's what my my, my lawyer tells me <laughs> i'm not in the same sort of um, predicament as most folks who are undocumented like i'm undocumented i got ar- arrested and detained and so i was released on bond um and then and, I, and i'm also married so i have this weird um I exist in this weird place where I don't have status, but I have some sort of very um, thin veneer of protection, which might not mean anything when I'm traveling tomorrow. Who knows? But I just want to make a distinction between, I guess, the varying levels of, of anxiety that folks in folks who are without papers face. And mm-hmm. um, I just want to say that. Uh, in terms of, like, Trump... Um, I, you know, the the, the dynasties, the current dynasties on immigration, or the most recent dynasties on immigration, um, is really born from the dynasties on race, because immigration is ultimately about race. Uh, it's about othering. It's about um, discrimination. That's that's just what it is about. But on a on a hyper local and, and on a global scale, simultaneously, and and. I, you know, I don't buy this um, explanation that Trump's immigration immigration policy are that Trump's immigration policy is somehow divorced from the sentiment of most Americans. I don't think that's true. I think that if you consider, like I said, immigration as a question of movement, for example, between different kinds of spaces, between, for example, hyperlocal geographies, so between neighborhoods, and also between social spaces. And you see that a lot of a lot of Americans, regardless of where they are on the political um, spectrum, live their lives in such a way as to create these boundaries, whether it's um, school districts, for example, that, um, you know, you know, that concentrate wealth in a particular uh, community, um, or whether it's, you know, their, their social groups. Like, all of these things, the aggregate of them, you know, creates the sum of the current immigration policy that we have. And and so my um, personal feelings about the Trump administration are, this is America. This is what America is. You know, America is this, and I don't, I, I don't care if you're liberal or if you think you're conservative. Um, everybody bears, to a certain degree, some responsibility for um, fostering the immigration system that we have. Um, fo- 
fostering the uniquely American um, um, divisions based on race and class, but also the global divisions based on nationality. Um, So you're saying, like, if America were to hold up a mirror to itself, the reflection would be Trump? Uh, Well, some of the reflection would be Trump. I mean, I I just think that trying to trying to um, caricaturize Trump or trying to villainize Trump uh, is 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 not, uh, in my mind, the 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 most effective um, way of creating the sort of change that we, that we want to see. Like yes, you know, there are very real and dangerous policies, and I, you know, I'm, for example, particularly vulnerable to them. These policies that that, that Trump and his administration present, and so there has to be work, um, you know, real policy work, organizing um, that goes into fighting those, um, um, fighting that reality. But just as important is the personal work that we have to do uh, to recognize the shit that we carry, Mm -hmm. you know, the shit that that continues to entrench. Um, the society in very clear and and discreet um, spaces, you know, based on race, again, based on gender, based on class, you know, they 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 are a vast interlocking network of oppressive power structures, um, of which Trump is a reflection, but he is not the entire reflection. You know, the reflection also looks like. Um, Hillary Clinton also looks like Bernie Sanders, also looks like me, you know? Um, so I don't know if that makes sense. Uh, I, I'm, not, I, I, I'm not trying to create an equivalency between, for example, Trump and Hillary Clinton, because I think there's a clear difference. What I'm trying to say, though, is that there's a tendency, which I realized, for example, in my dinner series, in when confronting a serious problem, folks are very quick to externalize the problem mm-hmm. um, and blame other people and, and, and distance themselves from it, either through political affiliation. So they'd be like, oh, well, I'm liberal and Trump is a conservative. So that's not, I mean, I didn't contribute to that. But mm-hmm. that's not true. Like the, the problem that exists without, especially in America, is fed from within. And that's, I guess, a huge part of what my dinner series is about. Like, we have to come to terms with the shit that we carry uh, unspoken, unsaid, and unresolved, because that shit eventually yeah. manifests. You're just advocating for everybody to do better themselves, personally. And if that means, <laughs> yeah. you know, having having dinner be a somewhat um, uncomfortable experience every now and then, then so be it. Yeah. Um, are you planning any more dinner series upcoming, or are you are you just kind of staying grounded, like you mentioned earlier? Um, I'm currently just chilling. Okay. Uh, yeah. All right. Um, I would love to have you reach out, you know, to the network and, and tell us how we can follow your work. And like, if you do have any more dinner series coming up, I know that I personally would want to know about that. And I'm sure other listeners would too. What's the best way to kind of stay connected, um, to what you're working on? Um, I have a website from Lagos.com and yeah, to that. 
and then Instagram, which is just pictures of food and New Orleans, really. But yeah, that sounds nice. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Okay, great. Uh, Well, Tunde, this is so interesting and fascinating. And thank you so much for taking the time to to share your experience and your story. And I'm just so privileged to have you as a guest today. And I look and I hope to experience one of your dinners at some point, whether it be here or New Orleans or wherever you are, Um, because I'm sure it'll be very thoughtful and, you know, delicious in spite of itself. (laughs) Thank you so much for being patient with me and and listening to to me talk. I appreciate it. It was really my pleasure. Thank you all so much for tuning in to Food Without Borders. We'll see you next week, same time, Wednesday, 5 p.m. EST. listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you for our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events subscribe to our newsletter enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org connect with us on facebook instagram and twitter at heritage underscore radio heritage radio network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better fairer more delicious place And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.